Buddhist studies. And we're going to take another minute or two to let people get settled and to wait for everyone to join the call. So welcome everyone, we'll get another minute or two. And give everyone the opportunity to join us. While we wait for everyone, you can take a moment to settle in and find a comfortable place to rest. We'll be doing a little bit of sitting. give folks maybe one more minute and then we'll start. So, welcome everyone. My name is William Edelglass. I'm Director of Studies at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Don, Joseph, and I are all speaking to you from a 
clearing in the mixed hardwood forests of Barrie, Massachusetts, home of the Insight Meditation Retreat Center, the Forest Refuge, and the Barrie Center for Buddhist Studies. Tonight we'll be talking about Dharma transmission and in some classical Buddhist traditions, we hear of the Dharma being transmitted by the mountains, the waters, trees, the wind, birdsong. I felt something like this here in Barrie. And have so much gratitude for the beech, the maple, the oak, birch trees, the ash trees, and so many of the other beings surrounding us here, the coyotes we hear at night, and the owls, the morning doves, the rabbits, chipmunks, and the waters that nourish us all and that flow east to the Atlantic Ocean. I want to acknowledge that this land was stewarded by the Nipmuc people who for countless generations were living here amongst these trees. Many continue to live here. This area was traditionally known as Nipponet. And it's helpful for me personally to ground myself here in this place, remembering that there were people living rich, fulfilling lives here long before the time of the Buddha. This morning, one of my colleagues at BCBS, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies mentioned that there were participants in this webinar from more than three dozen countries. And it's really moving to me to think of us all grounded in the practices that we've inherited and grounded in the different places where each of us is situated now and coming together. We're a small center, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. We only have 32 beds and we offer intimate residential retreats. For a number of years, we've offered online programs. With the pandemic, it's been so beautiful for us to offer um, retreats, online retreats, online courses, programs like this to such a broad diversity of people with so many different practices, so many different experiences, so many different lineages. And we offer the opportunity to learn some new practices, perhaps insight dialogue or exploring, exploring the relationship between Dharma and art, or writing a Buddhist essay, or doing a six-week program on studying the Pali Suttas. I think for Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, for many of us, as with for many of the Dharma centers around the world today, we're exploring questions about how we remain grounded in the liberating wisdom and practices of the traditions we've inherited, even as we find ourselves also called to address the turbulence and urgency of these times. It's a conversation that's been ongoing for us as a community, and I'm so glad, Joseph and Dawn, that you are joining us for this conversation. Me too. I think I'll give you each a very brief introduction with the hope that in our conversation, you'll be able to share more of what might be relevant. Um, so Joseph, you've been practicing Buddhist meditation since the mid sixties and starting in the mid 1970s, you've been leading insight retreats and loving kindness retreats in many places around the world. And it was about that time that you founded or co-founded the 
Insight Meditation Center, where you are still a guiding teacher. And some years after that, you co-founded the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. And we're so grateful you've been on the board for so many years. Um, and in addition to your teaching retreats, you've written a number of books that have been Dharma gates, that have invited so many people in on the path to cultivate wisdom and an open heart. These include Mindfulness, Practical Guide to Awakening, A Heart Full of Peace, One Dharma, The Emerging Western Buddhism, and Insight Meditation, The Practice of Freedom. And relevant to our conversation tonight, I've really appreciated seeing how you have been so supportive of so many young teachers. And on a more personal note, as a neighbor, I have found you to be funny and open-minded in conversation, and importantly for me, you've taken delight in playing with my daughters, which means a lot to me. And Dawn, you haven't been practicing for quite as long as Joseph, but you've been practicing for a long time. And you've worked for many years at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and you are in the final year of the IMS teacher training program. And you teach regularly at IMS and BCBS. And as everyone in our communities know, you've become a very well-respected and beloved Dharma teacher and are on one of the lead faculty members for the joint program for IMS and BCBS that we will be starting next year, Love and Liberation, or in 2022. And we're so grateful that yeah, you- Yeah, not, not next year. Please, not yet. <laughs> that you will be spending, continuing to spend part of the pandemic here with us in Barry. So okay. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. And Joseph, maybe you can start by leading us in a short set. Okay, so let's sit for an hour and a half or so. And, oh, no, short sit, okay. Can we, can we? <laughs> uh, we'll just sit for five or so minutes. Uh, take a comfortable, alert posture. You know, usually in this tradition, we sit with our eyes closed, but it's also possible to sit with eyes open if you're accustomed to that. Maybe take a few deep breaths just as a way of settling into the body, landing here. Letting the breath now find its own natural rhythm. Be aware of your sitting posture. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. <clears throat> breathing out, know you're breathing out. It's really that simple. Keep in mind that it's not a breathing exercise, but an exercise in awareness and mindfulness. So 
So we don't need to make the breath any special way. Simply being aware of it, each one as it presents itself. Deep or shallow, long or short. We're simply mindful of each breath as it is. You may notice where in the body you feel the breath most clearly. Is it the air passing the nostrils or the movement of the chest or the abdomen? Or is it throughout the whole body? Simply to notice. You might become aware of other sensations in the body that call the attention. Open to the feeling of those sensations, feeling them, and also noticing how they change. They get stronger or weaker, shift position, And then settling back into the awareness of the whole body and the body breathing. And also stay alert for the arising of thoughts or images in the mind. It's sometimes helpful to make a very soft mental acknowledgement, mental note, thinking or seeing if it's an image. Noticing how the thoughts and image is also arise and pass away.
Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. Joseph. So I was thinking we would start with each of you sharing something about how the Dharma was transmitted to you, how you came to the Dharma, and situating yourselves a little in this conversation more in a more singular way. Maybe Joseph, you could start us off. Well, it's going back quite a few years now to uh, 1966 or so. Uh, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. Uh, I finished uh, college and studied philosophy at school, then went off to the Peace Corps. And at a certain point, I started attending uh, discussion groups led by two Buddhist monks, four Westerners who were um, living in Bangkok. And it was an interesting, interesting meeting. They were held at the quite famous marble temple. So it was this, in this beautiful temple. Uh, and there was a group maybe of 20 or so people, Westerners. And the monks were giving, you know, the basic teachings. But having studied philosophy, I went there and I was asking so many questions that people stopped coming. <laughs> because they were getting so annoyed with me. Uh, I think out of desperation, one of the monks said, why don't you try meditating? And of course, I was young. I was, you know, 20, 21 years old. Uh, first time in Asia. It was all very exotic for me. I didn't really know anything about Buddhism, didn't know anything about meditation. Uh, <clears throat> so he gave me just the very basic instructions as kind of as we did just uh, at the beginning here. Uh, you know, sitting down, being with the breath, noticing what's happening. So I get all my paraphernalia together and kind of sit, and I set my alarm clock for five minutes because I didn't want to sit too much. But it was really quite amazing. Something very significant happened even in that first five minutes. And it's not that it was any great enlightenment experience, but what happened was that I saw that there was a way to look into the mind as well as looking out through it. That there was actually a methodology for looking inwards. 
I was just so excited by this because going from the study of philosophy, which seemed very external and academic, and here was this very immediate, direct way of looking at one's own mind. I got so excited by this. <clears throat> I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> of course, that didn't last very long. <laughs> uh, but that's how, that's how revelatory it was for me. And then after my Peace Corps days, I came back to the States and tried to practice on my own. Uh, but it got very confusing. You know, I really hadn't had very detailed instructions. And so I was just mixing up a lot of different things. And I realized then that I needed a teacher. Uh, and I got motivated to go back then to Asia. I ended up in India. And after traveling around a bit, uh, ended up in Bodh Gaya, uh, which of course is the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, where I met my first teacher, uh, Anagarika Munindraji. And he said something just when I met him that was so uh, striking to me. It really, it really hooked me in my Dharma practice. And it reinforced what I had learned in that first five minutes. He said, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. <laughs> it was that simple. You know, there was nothing to join. There were no rituals or no ceremonies. It was just, if you want to understand your mind, observe it. And it made so much sense. It was just such common sense. And that really motivated uh, all these years of practice. Um, well, that, was, that was really the beginning of it. Go on. <laughs> I'm actually, as I listen to you, Joseph, I'm really struck by just how our entry points in um, similar and yet so different. Like you had to go to Asia to connect with the teacher, whereas I just had to travel 30 minutes from my house <laughs> to connect with the Dharma and um, didn't have to leave the United States at all. So it's just a kind of a testament to what your generation, what you brought back and what you helped seed here, which was um, Star to Bloom and was ready for someone like me. Um, my entry into Dharma was a boy. <laughs> and that boy and I are still together. We're still um, been 16 years. He's my Dharma benefactor, actually. And um, I was in school and we were apart nine months out of the year and then I would come back for about three months during the summer. So we had 12 weeks together and he told me that he would be volunteering at the family retreat at Spirit Rock and I thought we only have 12 weeks together. Why do you want to go away and volunteer at a family retreat to serve as a mindful leader? And he said well why don't you come? Why don't you come? You can, um, you really enjoy children, you love families, why don't you just come? And I thought, no, I, I might like it, I might enjoy it. And um, to my horror, I hated family retreat. I hated it. And um, the irony of all of this is, is like three years later, I ended up um, serving the family program at Spirit Rock as the family program coordinator and um, was just raised in the Dharma by um, all those families, all the staff, all the teachers. But um, I 
I thought, <laughs> I thought the songs were saccharine. I thought the art projects were saccharine. Um, everyone's talking about their feelings and doing all this meditating. But there was a moment in front of the dining hall at Spirit Rock. And I was with Ajahn Amaro. And he asked me what I thought of the retreat. And I was just straight up with him. I was like, I hate it. It's too saccharine. Um, it's, it's like, it's too goody good. And he was very patient with me and said, yeah, it's like a goodness camp, isn't it? And there's a way in which he took my word goody goody and turned it into good. And all the judgment that I filled, filled that word with. And reminded or invited me to feel into the goodness that was actually there. And uh, as I just remember how clear his eyes were, how curious they were, and they've, they've, they've closed this trail at Spirit Rock. There used to be a trail that connected the picnic tables that were right outside the dining hall and the trail led up to the meditation hall. And my memory is that he didn't have any shoes on, that he was just walking up this path. And I thought, he hardly has anything, and yet he seems so happy and alive and curious. And that, that made an impression on my heart, left an indelible impression on my heart. And the retreat is working on me, and my heart softening, and there's this very beautiful ritual at the end of family retreat where the volunteers and the teachers create two parallel lines and they bow in the families as they walk into the meditation hall. And I came face to face with this mother and it looked, she was weeping and it looked to me like um, she was just radiating like just this unabashed gratitude. And something happened for me. I, to this day, I don't quite understand what happened, but my heart just opened. And my sweetheart knew when to, to come in. And so he said, well, do you want to sit a retreat? There's a young adult retreat. That's going to <laughs> so I said, sure. And I heard, um, it was Diana Winston, and she offered a teaching on the eight worldly winds. And she used the Buddha's, the night of his enlightenment and his quest for awakening as an, an archetype that we could all relate to. And after that talk, I just remember thinking, I could be doing everything perfectly and the eight worldly winds will still be blowing through my life. And it just, mm -hmm. I just felt like the pressure was off and I wanted to know, I just wanted to practice. I wanted to know more. So I'd go back to school and I'd practice and then I'd come back to Spirit Rock in the summers and I'd volunteer and I'd volunteer for family retreat because I'd fall in love by family retreat then, by then. And I'd sit the young adult retreat and volunteer for the Abaya Gary teen weekend and then go back to school. And then um, I graduated from school. I remember being on the phone with my mentor and telling her, I don't want to continue with school. I just want to sit retreats. And she said, uh, have you ever thought of sitting a long retreat, like a month long? And I said, do you think I could do that? And she said, of course you can. 
And sometimes that's just all you need. You need someone who like believes in you and encourages you. And um, I sat that retreat, started working at Spirit Rock, very grateful to them because they allowed me to continue to work and also um, just give myself to the practice and sit retreats there. So that's, that's the entry in. Dawn, you inspired me. I want to go on retreat. <laughs> Maybe we can go on retreat together. We're not far from retreat. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dawn. So um, the theme of our conversation is Dharma transmission. Maybe we could just pause for a little while and try to understand what it is we're talking about. When we talk about Dharma transmission. So the overarching question that we're thinking of and many other people are thinking of today, what, how do these liberating practices and wisdom that we've inherited, how do they apply to these times and how do they speak to these times? What is it that we're really talking about when we talk about Dharma transmission? Well, I think in one way, uh, it might be good just to clarify what we mean by Dharma, because you know, that's the Sanskrit version in Pali, Dhamma, uh, but it's a word that has a broad range of meanings. Uh, and the most general would be, you know, we might say it's nature, or just the laws of nature. And in that sense, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, William, uh, nature can be a great teacher, you know, and so there can be a transmission of that. Um, then more specifically, Dharma can mean, um, and in, in our context, it often more specifically means the teachings of the Buddha, as he explained the laws of nature. You know, and so when we talk about the Dharma transmission, generally in our context, we're talking about the transmission of the teachings and the experience uh, that come from the practice of the teachings uh, that originate in the Buddha and have been passed down, you know, for 2,600 years, which itself is a remarkable thing, that, that there has been a continuity of transmission from the time of the Buddha you know, until today. So that's, that's really quite remarkable and that they've, they've maintained such a, um, uh, a clarity, you know, and have, have as much meaning for us today as they did 2,600 years ago. And so I find that quite remarkable. Uh, and then of course, this whole question of the skillful means of how to impart the teachings you know, and the different lineages and traditions and teachers all have their own particular style and way of conveying the teachings. So I think that's, that's what we're all involved in. We're all really in this chain of transmission, which, you know, goes back to the time of the Buddha until today. Uh, and that itself can be pretty daunting. I remember one time when I was a fairly new teacher I was leading a retreat in Bodh Gaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, and giving a Dharma talk under the Bodhi tree. <laughs> that was the most difficult, challenging talk 
I have ever given. I'm so um, glad that's not a part of the teacher training. Thank you so much for not making that a part of the teacher well, training. Not actually, this is a good idea, Maggie. <laughs> you did it, it was, for us. <laughs> it was so challenging because it, it was as if the Buddha was sitting behind me, listening to all my uh, little Dharma jokes. Uh, yeah, it was challenging. But it does reflect this whole idea of transmission and continuity of it, you know, mm -hmm. over the years. It's interesting, Joseph, when you talk about the, the just being a part of this chain and this passing down of these, the liberative teachings through the generations, I feel like the teacher training is a transmission of sorts. Yeah, right? yeah. If you think of it in that way. And uh, this training, it has gone by so fast, and yet we're still in it. We've got a couple more trainings, and then it culminates in our graduation. And there's so much that I just wonder, are there, we've been, um, you've transmitted so much to us, everyone on the faculty. And I just wonder, are there things that you, you want to, that you would long for us to continue to um, be in relationship with and pass on to, if we continue teaching, the next generation of practitioners and teachers. Um, <clears throat> in a way, for me, <clears throat> for me the, the most, uh, powerful part of the transmission in the training uh, is the emphasis which I hope got conveyed uh, I'll about, let you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about the critical value necessity of all of us continuing our own practice yeah actually because yeah that's where the teaching comes to. The teaching comes out of our own practice and experience. Yes, yeah, this verified faith that's derived yeah. through our continued practice. Yeah. I feel like our cohort has been, we just love to practice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you send an email to someone in our cohort, and inevitably you get back these replies of, I'm on retreat for a couple of months, or I'm on retreat for two months. So I just yeah. feel like our, our cohort has been really dedicated to that and feels... I feel like that commitment was there before we started the training. Um, and I feel like the training has emphasized that and definitely has conveyed that. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the challenges is going to be, and I see this in the whole transmission of the Dharma in the West and everything that's, you know, evolved over these last 40 or so years, uh, is that there's such interest and such really demand for the teachings that it's very easy for teachers to get so busy yeah. in sharing the Dhamma that sometimes, you know, one's own practice can fall by the wayside a bit because we want to be giving, you know, and serving and helping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's, that's a danger, really. Mm -hmm. you know, that, and I find for myself, it's been, it's been invaluable to carve out, you know, a good chunk of time every year. Actually, I was really inspired by something that you had said 
years ago. I think you had come to Spirit Rock. You go to Spirit Rock, say, once a year to teach the July Insight Retreat, and you'd come and you'd talk to the staff. And I remember you coming in and talking about um, just the fact that you you take anywhere from two to three months to practice every year. And I was really inspired by that, so much so that I was like, I'm going to do that. And to this day, um, William, Jill, and I are planning um, a program, and you need time to plan a program and actually like schedule meetings. So we're scheduling meetings far out. And uh, part of that scheduling has been um, really respecting the fact that Jill and I have set aside time where we're going to be away practicing. Like, Great. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. That's really what important. What else do you teach from? What else do you yeah. teach from? Yeah. There's one other aspect of transmission that I think is really important. Um, and I think it was instilled in me by my first teacher, uh, Munindraji. Uh, so I met him when I went to Bodh Gaya. He had just come back from, I think it was nine years in Burma, where he had done a lot of practice and, and the whole teacher training there. But also he devoted, I don't know, it was five or six years to the thorough study of the texts, you know, uh, the, the complete, you know, the, the, the suttas, the Abhidhamma, the Vinaya, all the commentaries. So he was totally immersed in, in the teachings yeah. uh, of the Buddha. And he taught that way. So even when he was teaching meditation, it was all embedded in the larger context of the whole teachings and the suttas. And I just, and Mahasi Saiva, who was his teacher, uh, was also one of the great practitioner scholars. You know, so there's one, there's one stream of teachers who really have combined the two, mm-hmm. of both study and practice. And for myself, I've just found that so uh, helpful because the Dharma is always much vaster than our own individual experience. Mm-hmm. We, may have, we may have powerful transforming experiences, but the Dharma is vast. Yeah. And it's the study aspect which actually can open up so many of those doors. It's so interesting that um, I had heard about this um, kind of interplay between study, reflection, and meditative development. Mm-hmm. I heard people talking about it, but actually didn't know that the Buddha had actually named it as a way of deepening our own understanding of Dharma. The Chittamaya Panya, Suttamaya Panya, and Bhavanamaya Panya. And um, it was just great to like see it in the suttas, just mm-hmm. see it in the suttas. But my own relationship with it really was the meditative practice, the meditative development that called me first. I was pretty shy of the suttas. I mean, those are some big volumes over there. Like, (laughs) they seem pretty intimidating. But it it really wasn't until I felt the relationship between what the teachings were actually saying in my own practice that the suttas came to life for me. Yes. I remember um, it was was my second long retreat. Guy was giving a talk on... 
forget what he was giving a talk on, but he was using um, uh, an excerpt from the Honeyball Sutta. And I just liked it for some reason. I just, it just appealed to me. So I wrote him a note asking him, like, well, can you just give me that part of the sutta? I know we're not supposed to read, but I was an undisciplined yogi during that second, that second long retreat that I sat. So I was just reading the sutta and I'd read it so many times, or that portion of the sutta, not the whole thing, mm. that portion of the sutta. And I'd read it over and over again, not realizing that I had memorized parts of it. So it was just in my frame of reference in the in my just in the background. And I remember sitting and then seeing my own mind doing what the sutta yes. had. And it was just like Yeah. Huh. <laughs> it was like it was so um, it just strengthened my faith in the teachings. Yeah. Yeah. Just to see it so clearly. Yeah. Like and if like the gratitude that I had to the Buddha for like, you figured this out all on your own. You didn't need it. Like you figured this out. Like it's pretty, it's pretty, um, it, it strengthened my faith. Yeah. Yeah. Really strengthened my faith. Yeah. You know, there's a really important point here. And I love that story of how we can internalize the teaching and then actually have them come up in our meditation, you know, at particular times. And I think that points to something which may, may sometimes be misunderstood. You know, when we read kind of the Buddhist texts or the, the discourses, it's easy to, to read it as Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, yeah I and mean, then we have various views of we agree or we don't agree, whatever. But really, all the teachings and all the suttas are instructions. It's not philosophy. You know, it is philosophy in a way, but really the Buddha's just telling you, do this. Yes. And yes. you'll experience some results. What? So just one suggestion for people who are watching and listening now. If you'd like to get a taste of how intertwined study and practice can be, I would recommend, um, you could probably find these online, any of the discourses of Mahasi Sayadaw ex ex explicating a discourse. Mm -hmm. you know, so he wrote a lot, but he also wrote these quite short, you know, booklets really on individual suttas. And it's so amazing how he's using the sutta and in, in his discourse, applying it to the meditation practice. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it's, it's quite an amazing uh, interweaving you know, of study and practice and it might, give, it might give you all a flavor of the potential of that. I'm curious how in the teacher training or what either of you think is the role of um, teaching study or studying in the transmission of the Dharma? Mm. Uh, I, I feel it's really important. It's essential. Uh, because it, it also provides a, um, a reference point. Wait, I want to back up a little bit. 
in teaching and in being in this line of transmission, you know, going back to the Buddha up until now, it's a huge responsibility. You know, it's not, it's not a trivial undertaking uh, on a few different levels. On one level, you know, people come and really are entrusting their hearts and minds to us as teachers and people get into a very open and sometimes vulnerable place. So there's a huge responsibility there. Uh, and to be as grounded as possible in as deep an understanding of the Dharma as possible, I think is one way of fulfilling that responsibility. And it also provides a reference point for uh, our own latest ideas about practice. <laughs> you know, say, uh, say that again, Joseph, I missed that. Our what ideas about our practice? Our own latest ideas. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, we can be going, yeah. we can yeah. be practicing and we have lots of different input and influences. Oh, this sounds great. I'm going to bring this into the teachings, yeah. Yeah. you know. And often it's great. Often it's wonderful. But sometimes, you know, it may be a little off <laughs> from, from the real teachings of the Buddha. Uh, so in the context of transmitting the Buddha's teachings, I think there really is a responsibility to know in as much depth as possible what they actually are, you know. Uh, I, I think there's one, there's one, I don't know if it's a blog or something online. Uh, I it's something that. that says, did the Buddha really say that? <laughs> you know, and it's a lot of things that are getting expressed these days, you know, and it's very commonly introduced. Oh, the Buddha said such and such. It's so a funny thing. Yeah. So whoever this person is goes back and checks, well, did the Buddha really say that? <laughs> and more often than not, not. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a so great. So the study is just a real grounding, you know, that I think is so, so helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I actually feel like as trainees, um, the suttas have helped us bond in a way. We create these study groups and we're exchanging yes. ideas and we're um, talking about them and trying to understand them. And it's been a way for us to connect and um kind of deepen our understanding while also deepening our connection to each other yeah hey how come you haven't invited me to those dormant discussions <laughs> they, they you might get some invitations joseph okay you get some invitations <laughs> no it's a great thing to be doing yeah. so joseph you had used the term skillful means earlier that as a teacher, one tries to find skillful means to teach what is an appropriate supportive practice for the student who's working with it. And skillful means can also be a term that we might think about that would allow a teacher to address some things which maybe the Buddha didn't address explicitly, but that as contemporary practitioners and as contemporary teachers we face, whether it's the challenges of living in a hyper-connected world, iPhones or cell phones or the internet or um, other challenges of what does it mean to live as an ethical person? What would right livelihood or wise action or 
wise thinking be in the context of climate change or the kinds of um, challenges that liberation movements um, are trying to address, you know, racism, sexism, um, the way we make certain kinds of bodies the norm, um, whether racially or gender or ability. Um, you know, these, there are these two foundational Buddhist doctrines of impermanence, that everything is changing, and dependent origination, that everything is dependent on the causes and conditions. And our life as practitioners and as teachers, the situation we find ourselves in right now is indeed dependent upon all the causes and conditions of our thinking of our lives. And I'm curious, um, what you think is the skillful role, either of you, for a teacher today to address some of what feels very urgent to many practitioners? Um, yeah, if you would care to speak. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> so I think there are different levels of understanding that question. You know, and one level, on one level, I think the Buddha did address all of it because the root cause of the kinds of situations and problems that you mentioned that we face, you know, in, uh, in our society, that the root cause of suffering is greed and hatred and delusion. You know, and so, on the most fundamental level, I think when we're helping people understand how those forces work in the mind and how they manifest in the mind, you know, how does greed manifest in all the choices we make in our lives and that society makes? And how does fear and anger, you know, or hatred manifest? And we can see it, we can see it, you know, being played out in so many different ways. So I think the two levels are you know, a more formal Dharma practice can really be addressing the root causes of all the kinds of suffering, you know, that are out there. And then on another level, we might call it, you know, and there's, you know, movements of this socially engaged Buddhism, where we're really engaging in specific arenas you know, of difficulty and suffering in the world. And we see really out of compassion, you know, compassion for the suffering. Well, what can I do? How can I help in this situation? Uh, but I feel it's really important to connect those two, you know, as, as practitioners, you know, of the Dharma, I think as we engage, you know, in addressing the, the problems that we face, that it's rooted in the deeper understanding of the root causes of them. And that's where the, the Buddhist teachings are just so, so powerful. Just, I'll just give you an example of what happens when we don't do that. So for many years, this, this goes back away, but for many years I was teaching uh, retreats for in, environmental and social activists. Uh, and so these were people on the front line you know, of social engagement and doing great work. The problem that was most commonly brought up 
in those retreats was the problem of burnout. And one of the reasons for burnout is that sometimes people try to address these problems maybe from anger, you know, and that's, that's their fuel. They get really angry and it's understandable, you know, because there are a lot of situations in the world of oppression or injustice, uh, so many, so many arenas uh, where when we face it, can feel the anger coming up and that emotion as a message that something needs to be done here can be valuable. But it's not a sustainable energy for continuing action because it burns us up. We get burned out. And so there was a very interesting discussion on these retreats of how to transmute the motivation of anger as the source of action to compassion as a source of action. You know, we could take the same actions out of compassion for the suffering that's there rather than even anger at the perpetrators. You know, and it's a completely different mind state, heart space, and much more sustainable. You know, it actually brings a greater result. So that's why I think these two levels really work, work together. They're not, they're not distinct in my mind. It's what you're saying about um, having the fuel of our um, engaged, um, our engagement with the world and wanting to affect change at a societal level coming from compassion as opposed to anger reminds me so much of um, King's third principle of the Kingian nonviolence. And I'm not crazy about the language, but um, I just love the, the spirit of that's embedded in the words. It says we attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. And that we're looking at deconstructing the conditions that have led to the systemic harm and not yes. making an opponent out of, um, out of the personalities. That yeah. are in the, yeah. no, that's beautiful. And I, I've, yeah, I feel that's really in alignment with this the whole transmission action. of the Dharma. Yeah. And, and actually what, what we as Dharma practitioners can contribute to social engagement, you know, because not everybody understands that or even, even is aware of the possibility of it, you know. Because as is probably obvious to all of us, uh, it's, it's not necessarily easy to let go of anger. To move from anger to compassion. Yeah. So yeah. That, ta that takes a real practice. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's definitely a contribution that these teachings can make to that. Yeah. yeah. As, I love the word that you use, transmuting, transmuting the anger yeah. into yeah. Um, compassionate action. Um, I think it's, it's a question that's really up in our communities, our practice communities right now, because as you were saying, William, during the introduction, we're living in times that are very turbulent and very urgent. The climate crisis and racial injustice and gender equity and dismantling patriarchy. Like, um, and I think it's beautiful that people are asking, how can the Dharma, what does the Dharma have to say to this? How can we use the Dharma to um, 
and address these things. Um, what comes up for me is this term that's been floating around. I guess I started hearing this maybe two, three years ago, this collective liberation, this phrase. And um, I see the both of you smiling. <laughs> well, I have questions about this term. I have questions about it too. I'm in process around it. Like, what, like, what does that even mean? Exactly, what does it mean? exactly. <laughs> I've been wondering mean? that. Yeah, what does it mean? And um, I think there, like, if we're talking about large groups of people waking up in the in the ways that are kind of defined in um, Buddhism, like I don't quite yeah. that doesn't feel realistic to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, in order to come here to Barry, I had to drive cross country, and I just felt how vast this country is and the different kinds of people in it and uh, just the different ways that we live. And I, so when we say collective liberation, are we talking about would it include other religions and other practices from other backgrounds? Like what do, what do we mean by this? Is it possible for a dedicated group of people who wanna affect change at the societal level who are inspired and using the teachings of Dharma, using the teachings of the Buddha as inspiration and fuel, um, that seems possible to me. Mm -hmm. And I think we saw it in the civil rights movement. We saw a dedicated group of young people trained by an older generation in Kenyan, Gandhian, nonviolent action. They studied it, they trained in it, they um, practiced it, and it was fueled by this deep Christian ethic of love. And their effort, like, we're here together because of their efforts, right? Mm -hmm. So I, they, they impacted us in such beautiful, profound ways that still have this lasting impact. So I think a group of people who were inspired by the teachings of the Dharma that um, the teachings of the Buddha would inform the how of the social action, how to actually engage at this level. I think that's possible. Mm -hmm. um, is it possible for say a group of 10, 20 people who actually wanna metabolize the ways that they've been kind of acculturated to relate to women, to uh, relate to people of different races um, and see the defilements and actually um, see through those defilements and metabolize them through, well, just to use the Buddhist language, repeatedly seeing with wisdom. I hope that's possible. Um, and I know of groups who have set out, they come together and that has been their their goal and we'll see what happens we'll see what happens um i so want collective liberation to be a reality but again it all it all depends on how we're defining it yeah, yeah. i think one, one of the kind of um, issues or clarifications that's needed 
is just an understanding that the word liberation can have many different meanings. Very similar to the word desire, you know, mm -hmm. and because very often in teaching, you know, it, it's commonly understood, you know, desire is synonymous with craving, the yeah. cause of suffering. Yeah, yeah. But in English, and in Pali, there's a very specific word for that kind of desire, yeah. you know, <laughs> clinging and grasping and greed. But in English, we use the word desire in many different ways. Mm -hmm. A desire can be wholesome. You know, there's a desire to be more compassionate or more loving or awakened. And I think liberation has that same range of meanings in English, yeah. So when we, when we use a term or a phrase like collective liberation, in order to actually come to some common understanding of it, we would have to define, anybody using that term would have to define, okay, well, what do you mean by liberation? Mm -hmm. Are you meaning, in the classical Buddhist sense, the uprooting of the defilements of the mind? Mm -hmm. Or are you meaning, as you suggested, you know, um, helping to alleviate a lot of the causes, the, the symptoms mm -hmm. of the greed, hatred, delusion as they're manifesting in the world, it seems very unlikely to me that there will be universal collective liberation. You can make it happen, Joseph. You can do it. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we can move in that direction, certainly. But I mean, if the Buddha couldn't do it, so I, I, I'm trying to stay a little bit realistic here. But we can be going in that direction. I mean, that can be our aspiration. Um, William, I well, yeah, I, I do think it is a traditional aspiration of the bodhisattva. The bodhisattva is precisely the one who, whose aspiration is to support a kind of universal liberation. But there, I wonder if there are different ways of thinking about the term collective liberation um, that might be more consonant with, complementary to the more traditional view Here's one way of thinking it that I think some people might be sympathetic to. Um, if it's the case that we're always conditioned by the communities that we live in, by the language that we speak, by the social practices that we're caught up in, which at some point I think we are, even though we may be liberated from that at some point. Then each of us is caught up in ways of thinking and ways, social practices, which lead to the suffering of other people. So to use the examples that Dawn was thinking about well, with patriarchy or sexism or racism or environmental challenges. So to the degree that we are caught up in participating in smoothly without bringing some kind of critical awareness to those ways of thinking. Can we really practice wise thinking? Can we practice wise action? Can we practice wise speech? Can we practice wise livelihood? If our thinking is caught up in social practices and a language that 
does violence to some people. Mm. So collective liberation in that sense is, well, I need to liberate myself from a whole variety of ways of talking and thinking that I'm just born into and take as a natural given, as opposed to a social practice. And I can't really practice all the steps on the Eightfold Path until I have done the kind of critical work that would allow me to practice wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise things. Mm -hmm. So I think some people who would defend the use of the term collective liberation would say, well, if you really want to practice wise action and wise speech, having some critical awareness of the ways in which language can harm people would be necessary. And so that is a social practice. That's a collective practice, that kind of critical work. And so for me as an individual to be liberated requires doing some of that practice together. I think that's what some people might say in response, not that collective liberation is everybody will be liberated together or even necessarily that large groups of people will be liberated together. Though that is some, there, there's another way that some people defend the term collective liberation would speak. But this, what I'm articulating, might even be more consonant with an individual being liberated, but requires that to be done with spiritual friends and others. Yeah, in community. Like I, I, um, I know groups of people who are dedicated to that right now. Yeah, that are taking that up. I want to just offer <laughs> uh, uh, an additional comment because I, I agree with that and it, it's really inspiring. Uh, and as you expressed it, I think you expressed it really beautifully. It really is uh, the overcoming or the, the seeing through the delusion that's in our minds, you know, in all these areas. And so I see that as, as being very... <clears throat> very much part of, of our practice. Uh, but I'd also like to just put in a plug <laughs> for all those people who may, and there aren't many of them, so, <laughs> but all those people who may be sitting in a cave someplace, practicing with the aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all. And I think of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha before his awakening, how many lifetimes did he spend not engaged, you know, in social interaction, but off by himself cultivating, uh, in certain lifetimes anyway, cultivating the, the paramis that come from solitude, you know, like, like deep concentration. Uh, I think that's, that is also part of uh, a path to liberation. So I, I would, as much as I value and also try to practice everything you said, uh, I have a lot of respect for people who do take themselves apart, you know, um, who really practice um, maybe by themselves or in a very small community uh, in a very intensive way. Uh, and I, to me, that is as much social action as being on the front lines of engagement. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't separate them. I think there are different expressions of 
wanting to alleviate the suffering of all. You know, and for many of us, especially those of us who are lay people, we are living in the world and involved. And so uh, I have a lot of respect and appreciation for exactly as you, as you described it. And just in, in all the work that we've done in, in IMS and in that community here, BCBS, the work of undoing racism, you know, and so we've been doing that and trying to explore and understand it maybe for 10 or more years now. And it's been hugely opening for me. I mean, it's been one of the most uh, powerful, uh, really, experiences of these last years. So I see, and personally, you know, the tremendous value of that. And I also appreciate the Bodhisattva before he became Buddha. You know, we're benefiting from his time in the cave 2,600 years later. So to me, what he was doing then was as much social action in terms of benefiting others as what we're doing now as we're engaged in society. So I'd just like to bring in that aspect as well. But I see it, I see it as both. Yeah, I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic to that. I remember living in in Dharamsala in, in India, one of the things that I loved was looking up and there were people who had been sitting in these caves for yeah. 10 years or 15 years and being neighbors with a guy who had spent 20 years in a cave. And there's something about being near such a yeah. person. I feel that some to some degree with Pico and Alio, our neighbor, yeah. Yeah. father monk here, that there's something deeply inspiring about that commitment to practice that, um, that I find very moving. Um, but I want to follow up on this comment that you just made, Joseph, about um, how transformative it's been for you and how much you've learned. And I guess I want to pose the question to, to both of you, really, and that is that... Um, in what way might that opening not just change, say, social practice at IMS, language, structures of retreat, but might also change in some way the teaching of the Dharma or the, the transmission of the Dharma? What does it mean that um, having a group of yogis coming on retreat and a group of teachers who come with very different racialized, gendered experiences. In what way does that impact how the Dharma is taught and how does the Dharma speak to a much more diverse group of people? I see this already happening in my cohort, just mm -hmm. with some of them. Um, it's at the BIPOC retreat at IMS this summer. You want to say what BIPOC refers oh, to? Just Black, Indigenous, people of color. Thanks. A lot of words. Um, <laughs> and it was such a blessed retreat, bec partly because um, it was right after George Floyd was met, murdered. So it was, this felt good to come together. And also, um, 
of the 6 teachers 5 were from the IMS cohort and i i mean i've got to spend the, the past like 3 years with them but to feel the dharma moving through them in the way that is particular to them was very um very moving and what really comes to mind is um andrea castillo who talked about how work um just speaking the dharma in spanish um and i don't remember all the details but i just remember her talking about how her teaching um was changed because she was working with predominantly um hispanic women and i see in my own teaching like I feel like what's happening is we're using the specifics of our culture as a gateway to the our exploration of these liberative teachings. So for instance, um I just recently offered a talk where part of it explored um fostering empathy through using your imagination in ethical moral ways. and i brought in a scene from a raisin in the sun um and there was something um it's very personal but also very um it was using the particular to get to these universal teachings and um the reason i was inspired to do this is Duran I had went for a talk and we were just talking about how African Americans and just our our history in this country in order not to um as black people not to just fall into despair or bitterness we've had to cultivate the Brahma Viharas like for real and in this moment in the play a mama is using compassion and compassionate action to um save her family to save her family from the gravitational pull of internalized racism so i feel like we're bringing in um the stuff of our culture to um make the teachings uh come alive and um illustrate these teachings in ways that feel personal and will connect with other people um who look like me who look like Andrea Castillo yeah yeah no everything you just said so beautifully was precisely the motivation for this last teacher training in the cohort uh, just maybe some of the people listening probably most know but um so the idea behind this particular training was to train more people of color to be teachers for exactly the reason you're saying you know to be able to express from the inside you know and coming from your own personal experience of the place we live you know in in everything that is uh 
and realizing the need for that. You yeah. know, that, that teachers have to be able to manifest that and show that. Um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I just remember the first time I heard someone quote James Baldwin in a Dharma hall and I wept. It meant so much to me. Yeah, it yeah. It's like, oh, I, I can be here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can fully, I can bring more of myself into this hall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Are there any, we got about halfway through the questions that I was thinking of asking, and uh, we're going to move to some final comments at closing. Um, but I'm wondering if either of you have any last thoughts or questions for each other, or thoughts that you'd like to share. I do have a question for you, Joseph, and maybe I'll just ask you offline because I think it would just open up, it would open up like 45 minutes worth of material. <laughs> um, but it has to do with, I, um, I was listening to one of your first talks that's on Dharma Seed. You probably were giving talks before then, but this was July of 1974. And um, maybe we'll have a part two of this, I don't know. But um, I'm, I was curious, well, maybe you can speak to this in like two minutes or something. Um, in listening to the talk, I was struck by how much has not changed in terms of how you offer Dharma. Like there was this comprehensive understanding that you just felt um, was underneath what you were sharing. There was your characteristic clarity. There was your concern, like you were offering liberative teachings and you still do that. <laughs> um, but there are ways in which you were different too. And I'm curious, how would you characterize the way that you've have you changed in yeah, yeah over the years? Uh, I'm very aware of at least one aspect of that change. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this, this has been true in terms of uh, kind of my teaching and Dharma, but I think it's also this, this um, movement has also been acknowledged just in more generally in society as people get older. So mm -hmm. it's some combination, which is, I knew a lot more then than I do now. Yeah. I, was mu I was much more convinced that everything I knew was right yeah. back yeah. then. Yeah. 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 And so it was grounded very much in the teaching. So I think I didn't go too far off, mm -hmm. but there was that energy, mm -hmm. you know, of, yeah, this, this is how it is. <laughs> and over the years, and I think it's partially just kind of a, uh, aging, you know, getting older, but also uh, a fruit of the practice of just letting go of really um, attachment to views. It doesn't okay. mean that we don't have our views and, you know, our ways of understanding, but the grip of attachment to them has really loosened a lot and it's made me a lot happier because... Well, it's wonderful you mentioned that because now when you teach, 
one of the things that I associate was how much you laugh. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of laughter in that no, first. No, no, no. That's, that's an indication. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so I recommend this to everybody. You don't have to wait until you're 76. Okay. okay. <laughs> that we can have, you know, our various understandings, but without the, the certainty that they, they are the absolute truth. Great. Thank you. And it, it does make actually for very uh, more engaged conversation, you know, where, where we really can learn from one another a lot, you know, when we have that openness. Yeah. It, it just puts people at ease. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful entry. Thanks. Something we can all look forward to with aging. <laughs> uh, yes. Thank you, Joseph and Donna. Maybe, Joseph, this would be a good time to say a few oh, yeah. brief words on. Yeah. Uh, so, one aspect of transmission, which I was thinking about. Um, you know, when we think back to the Buddha establishing the monastic order as a structure and an organization, I find it totally remarkable that this same organizing structure has lasted 2,600 years. You know, this order of nun, nuns and monks, uh, and we could also include, you know, the lay people, uh, and one of the powers of the structure of the monastic order was that they really were the container for preserving the teachings. So the reason that they're available to us now and that we can practice them is because they were held by all these generations of nuns and monks and the monasteries uh, for thousands of years, so it's quite extraordinary. What's happening now, in, particularly in the West, uh, lay people are carrying a lot of that, we could say responsibility of holding the teachings, preserving the teachings. And this is quite new, actually, in the history of Buddhism. Uh, it's mostly been the monastic orders. So something, something quite different is happening now uh, you know, in our society and in the transmission of the Dharma. Now, one of the things that makes it possible for us as lay teachers to be holding the teachings and preserving them uh, are, the, are the institutions, are the organizations which support the teachings, one of which is the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. You know, and so it's actually the organization which provides the structure and foundation for people being able to offer and share the teachings with so many people. Uh, just before we started, uh, William and some of the staff, uh, you know, at the study center said there are about 1,200 people on this call, you know, which is amazing. But it took the organization of the staff at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies to put this on. Uh, and so this is just by way of encouraging, you know, all of us to be supportive of the organizations that are really holding and they're the container for the continuation of the teachings. And I just feel it's, it's inspiring to see that happen. And, um, you know, it'd be wonderful for people to really 
uh, understand the value of that and, and be supportive in whatever way is possible. Thank you, Joseph. And also thank you to all of you who made a really generous offering when you registered. Um, and Don, maybe you could offer us a guided meditation and a dedication of merit to close. Sure. So feel free to close your eyes if you like. You can practice with the eyes open. Just allow your gaze to be soft, whether your eyes are open or closed. Just connecting with the felt sense of the body sitting. as if the entire body could be filled with mindfulness, sati awareness. Perhaps allowing your attention to rest on the sensations of breathing in the body or even sounds in your immediate environment. Just resting and receiving breath sounds, breath or sounds. This attentive knowing. And just taking a moment to appreciate any wholesome, beautiful qualities that arose for us or yourself during our time together. Perhaps patience, truth-telling,
May all the wholesome energies that we've cultivated here together, may they touch and be of benefit to everyone that we come in contact with in the days, weeks, and months to come. May all beings, everywhere without exception, may they know safety and ease, peace. May they know health and well-being. May they be able to care for themselves, come by the basic necessities of life with ease and happiness. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Thank you, William. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, everyone. So good to be with you. Thank you so much, Don. That was lovely. Thank you so much, Joseph. And we wish everybody a good night. And we hope that we will see you in the Zoom room or in Barry before tomorrow <laughs> when the pandemic is over. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.